2: This is Histories of the Unexpected. He's the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. And he is Professor of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is Professor James Daybell. And we are your hosts for Histories of the Unexpected. Each week we discuss a surprising subject oozing with unexpected historical significance, and this week it's sweat.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Which is all about Native American rituals of purification
2: and late medieval death. No, it's not. It's all about capitalist exploitation and investigative journalism. (laughs) If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes subscribe to the podcast and tell all of your friends we're on twitter you can follow me at dr sam willis and you can follow me
3: at james daybell and you can follow histories of the unexpected at unexpected podcast that's spelled p d c s t we are proud to be
2: part of the excellent history hit network home of Dan Snow's History Hit and other great shows coming soon. And you can find out more about what we've got planned in the forthcoming months, show notes, video clips, photos of everything we discuss and much, much more at historyhit.com forward slash unexpected. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 27 of Histories of the Unexpected, where we will be audio-googling through history, exploring the histories of things you didn't even know had a significant story to tell, like canes, the dog, or wine. Wine? And we'll be following the links in our minds as we come
3: across them, explaining how simply... Everything has a history, and crucially, how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, that the history of the boot, the boot, is in fact all about the history of Italy, and not just because it's shaped like a boot. And the history of crawling is unexpectedly all about karma and Indian board games. I told you that and you don't believe me. You did. I have no idea what we're on about.
2: The man sitting opposite me is the Muppet of early modernism. The Muppet of early early modernism. Slightly insulting. It's James (laughs) Daber. And the man sitting opposite me is the Queen of Queries. (laughs) It is Dr Sam Willis. Yeah, I got you back. Together we will be piloting you on this uncharted and frankly highly dangerous flight into the past. Each week one of us takes the lead and this week it's my turn. And it's the second in our mini-series which was inspired by the Olympics because we're doing blood, sweat and tears. We've done blood, that was fascinating, and now we're going to do sweat. And of course this whole phrase, the quote blood, sweat and tears, was made famous by Winston Churchill in a speech in 1940, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears and sweat. Maybe we should do toil as toil. well. We've done blood. Blood took us all over the shop, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, it did. And this time we're going to do sweat. Okay. I was really intrigued with how I was going to start thinking about sweat. And I want to know what your immediate thoughts are. My were. immediate starting place with sweat is body odour. Yeah. We've done perfume. Yeah. We've done stink.
3: We've done the history of deodorant. I noticed when you turned up here today, you were very sweaty. I was. From cycling across town. So sweat can be connected to the history of exercise, health, well-being. It can also be the sweat on one's brow. So it's connected to toil Mm. and work and working conditions. It can be connected to different environments.
2: Visible sweating is interesting, isn't it? When it is connected to toil. So you have the opposite of it being professional, maybe being the prime minister and standing up at the dispatch box where you're not allowed to sweat. sweat. And sweating there is a sign of weakness, isn't it? Has that always been the same sort of cultural reactions to sweat that have changed?
3: Goodness me. I bet there are. I have no idea. I hadn't thought of that. You've stumped me, but it's connected to the handkerchief, the handkerchief to mop one's sweaty brow. From what we sure know about the
2: 18th lock. century, I bet that sweating was much more acceptable for people in responsibility and professional people than it is now. Yeah, I think you'd be much less spun, much less sort of
3: presented in a visual way like that. I mean, the thing nowadays is that politicians are on television all the time, yeah, and you have access to them in a way that you wouldn't have had in the past. So you wouldn't have been able to detect People sweat in the same way like that. Sweat is also connected to fear. You know, the sweaty palms of people being nervous or fearful. And
2: sleep. It really is. Mm. Do you sweat in your sleep? I do. Gosh. Yeah. comes and goes a bit. But, yeah, I I sometimes wake up covered in sweat. I don't know Mm. why that is. It's probably something horrific. It's also connected
3: to illness. You know, the the body naturally sweats in order to sort of, you know, increase temperature and
2: get better. I love this idea about sweating in public, though. That really does... Interest me. Because in the 18th century, I can think of loads of examples of people sleeping, really important people sleeping mm. through cabinet meetings. Mm. Mm. And they decided they had a wonderful lunch, a bit too much port, and fell asleep. So it was like, it sounds it, like a paper I gave at
3: a local history society last weekend, and it was in the afternoon session, and half the audience <laughs> were asleep.
2: <laughs> I've done that. I've given plenty of talks of people who were asleep. So, where are you going to take us with the history of sweat? I'm going to start with illness. Oh, with um, illness? Oh, yeah, okay. with illness, and particularly the sweating sickness. Ooh. is what I want to talk about. So right. it really begins late 15th century, and it doesn't even last a year. There are various outbreaks, 1485, 1508, 1517, 1528, and 1551, and then mm. it vanishes. Mm. And it's been kind of a medical mystery. The fascinating thing about it is that you sweat to death. That's what happens to you. And it was called the sweating sickness simply for that reason. There are other all sorts of horrific symptoms involved, but they're all a bit vague. It's kind of like stomach cramps and pain and headaches and flashing lights. Mm. But essentially, those are all the precursors to the sweat. The sweat comes on, and then you are dead within 24 hours. It's quick. Really quick. Unlike the plague, for Mm. example, which is...
3: Yeah, More drawn out.
2: And there were lots of really interesting explanations at the time of where it came from, and now people struggling to explain it. There's some uh, arguments, some thought, that it's actually anthrax, and it was oh. somehow to do with environmental change at the time. Others think that it came from an invading army, which would have been in Rhodes. They'd been campaigning in Greece. Right. Which is vaguely understanding, just because it's hot there. And I was wondering if they thought that was the explanation. That <laughs> so they were sweating. Yeah. So, it, so, it, so it came across from the continent to England. Right? Yes. There was a campaign against the Ottoman Empire in... Right. It rose in 1480. So that was one of the explanations for it. But it's one of these big mysteries, and I love a good mystery in history. Mm. And the mysterious sweating sickness, which accounted for thousands and thousands of lives. I mean, it killed 15,000 people in six weeks in one of the outbreaks in London. Gosh, goodness me. I have here
3: some descriptions of it as well. More. So there's a description from the 1485 epidemic that you're talking about, from one Thomas Forestier, and he writes... The exterior is calm in this fever, the interior excited. The heat in the pestilent fever many times does not appear excessive to the doctor, nor the heat of the sweat itself particularly high, but it is on account of the ill-natured, fetid, corrupt putrid and loathsome vapours close to the region of the heart and of the lungs, whereby the panting of the breath magnifies and increases and restricts of itself. I mean, it's just a really visceral description of it. There's also another description by the French ambassador to the English court in 1528. So we're in the reign of Henry VIII here. And it's claimed that one of the maids in Mademoiselle Boleyn's chamber was attacked on Tuesday by the sweating sickness. And it goes on, the king left in great haste and went a dozen miles off. I mean, very very sensible. He's <laughs> like, he doesn't away. Want to be caught by this. Very brave man. This disease is the easiest in the world to die of. You have a slight pain in the head and at the heart. All at once, you begin to sweat. There is no need for a physician, for if you uncover yourself the least in the world or cover yourself a little too much, you are taken off without languishing. It is true that if you merely put your hand out of bed during the first 24 hours, you become stiff as a poker. (laughs) That's incredible, (laughs) incredible sort of medical opinion at the time.
2: What period was that? 1528. 1528. You know, we're sort of
3: halfway through
2: Henry VIII's reign, more or less. Very graphic description of it, isn't it? Goodness me. So the sweating sickness, that's fascinating. I want to know more about it. It's so vivid, and for such a short period of time. It wasn't like one of these ones that sort of carried on. It must have left quite a scar. I think, on people for a very, very long time, and i wonder how much people really made an effort to understand what was going on or whether they just felt relieved that it had th- just think, come in an advantage. I think
3: there were attempts to understand it in the immediate aftermath, you know, and I think the quotations that we gave I think that's part of that kind of trying to sort of grapple with it, and then it disappears, yeah, and so it becomes less important because it's not around, you know, in a way that the plague is sort of continually popping its deathly head up. Can I take sweat in a different
2: way? You can. Can I ask you a quick, do you like saunas? I do if I'm not hungover. Uh, Have you ever been into a sauna when you're hungover? (laughs) So when you're already dehydrated? (laughs) I I, I basically had a near-death experience after quite a heavy night out. Goodness me. And then I went and sat in the sauna. um, As long as I'm...
3: (laughs) I'm I don't like like saunas. I think they're they're germy places. (laughs) Yeah. Germany places especially around swimming pools. But what I want to do is connect the sweat to the history of saunas. And from the history of saunas, I want to take us in another direction and go to Native American sweat lodges. Mm, okay. So if you think about hot room, sort of assistant. hot rooms. So deliberately making yourself sweat. And if we start by thinking about the steam bath, or the steam room, the sauna, it has a pretty long History can be traced back to ancient Greece, ancient Rome, you know, and you think about the Sudatoria in ancient Rome and these buildings that would have been put up around hot springs and rivers. And, you know, these are sort of very communal places, you know, kind of like a cross between a sort of club, a gym, and a shopping mall. In Turkey, they're also, those kind of public baths are very well known. You think about the Swedish saunas that we have today. But I want to take us to the Americas and I want to talk a little bit about Native American sweat lodges and I have a picture of one here. What do you think of that? There's a Native American sweat lodge for us.
2: That looks like an igloo made out of animal skin. Yeah. That's essentially what so, that it's, like, it's, it's a low semi-circular structure with some Native Americans standing outside looking quite proud of it. It's got the tunnel entrance Yeah, and I'm assuming that's in the desert somewhere. It looks hot. It says hot to me. Don't go in there. So this is
3: a Native American sweat lodge, and you're quite right. It looks like a dome shape. And in terms of circumference, it's about, I don't know, 10 feet round in circumference. It's pretty low. You couldn't stand up in here. It's pretty compact, rather like a sort of medium-sized dome tent, Mm -hmm. something like that, probably without the height. It's about five feet high, and it's made out of a sort of wooden frame of branches taken from aspen or willow trees and these are sort of lashed together and then you've got the hides on the top so the skins on the top you know moose bear buffalo and as you can see you've got an entrance here if you have a look outside here you've got a sacred fire and in that sacred fire uh, a number of stones which are heating up and inside it you've got a little pit and this is an incredibly spiritual sacred place that is connected with Native American spiritual mm. tradition. And this is about purification. But Did
2: it work the same as the sauna then? You heated it up and you worked the went as the sauna.
3: You went inside and the idea is that as the body temperature rose, so it kind of releases the sort of imagination and commune with the spirit world. So the way in which the entrance is facing is always to the east. So that has a significance and symbolism. And before you went into the sweat lodge, you would have basically purged yourself. So it's all about spiritual cleanliness. So none of this going into the sweat Lodge hung over. Well, is... Do
2: you know what though? I reckon the fact when I went in, I was massively dehydrated anyway, and the kind of the lightheadedness, the effect of the heat and the sweating when you're already yep. quite weakened is yep. probably exactly what they were yeah, aiming yeah, yeah, for, yeah. isn't it? Absolutely,
3: yeah. It uh, might be I closer imagine, than you I think. I imagine it has that same kind of impact on the body. Yeah. But the idea is that you want to be spiritually cleansed, so you sort of eat good things, you avoid smoking, you avoid drinking, all of that sort of stuff, and you, you know, as you go in, you're sort of um, rubbed yourself in various sort of sage and sweet grass, smoke. Mm. When everyone is in, you have the sweat leader, the doorkeeper, to drop the flap of it. So everyone is sort of contained inside. And they take these rocks, the stones that you can see on the outside, one by one, as they get hot, they take them inside. And this releases the stone people's spirits. And then, I suppose, as the temperature rises, people start, you know, commune with the spiritual world. And there's a speaking stick that is passed
2: around. So it's very communal and people... Share that I wonder thought, if there are Western descriptions by Europeans yes. of witnessing this or whether they weren't allowed into the sweat lodges. I, I assume they were quite proud of them when mm. they did let people in. Can someone find out and tell us? If I mean, they've got
3: this from a sort of Native American tradition. So this is indigenous peoples talking about their own culture. And I think that's absolutely sacred and valuable. But um, when you have these
2: cultural contacts, what's fascinating yeah. about them is that you have two... Is the perce- different perspective? The perception they they are yeah. right about yeah, 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 something yeah, yeah. completely different, yeah, yeah. even yeah. though they are in the same location yeah.
3: doing yeah. the same thing. So it's different ways of looking at it, different sort of viewpoints, perspectives.
2: Especially, looking, I mean, especially thing. if they actually have a yeah. shared tradition of it. So there yeah. is a shared yeah. Western tradition of absolutely. going back to the Romans, or, or, absolutely, and Absolutely. Of- Heat and sweating and communal yeah. sweating, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah, and what's interesting about this is that it is a sacred tradition. Yes, and i am not, not come across that before. I went to a sauna in Iceland once. Right. And there was some culturally competitive sweating, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, Icelanders in the sauna, we turned up, there were a group of us, and I was quite young, I went there on a, on a ship. Who has the sweatiest armpits? Well, who could withstand the heat? Oh. And we went in, and it was oh, unimaginably yes. hot. So, like, some real pro saunerers, these people and they'd been doing right. it all their lives and I, I i could last you know less than a minute and there was a bit of <laughs> wry laughter as the english boys left after a minute like having to hang on to each other but well, and these guys were just in there as this burly icelander goes over to the water <laughs> bucket and comes in and tips another yeah you know, five liters of water over the fire to yeah. steam the place up so if there was an olympics sweaters. olympics of competitive sweating my money would be on the icelandic yes, they're, yeah. they're, they're amazing <laughs> i bet the but uh, the <laughs> denmark and norway give them a run for their money so where do you take saunas where, or would you take, take f- sweat next well a completely different interpretation of the word sweat because um when i first thought sweat i thought oh you know sweating just like we've been talking about but there's mm. actually a really really interesting way to take it and that takes us back to the victorian period ah uh, i know where you're going with this um i'm going to read you something now all right okay when was this written when it's busy we work up to 60 to 63 hours the conditions in the factory are not very good there's no air circulation the bathrooms are outside on our floor almost no one goes to the bathroom they feel embarrassed the bathroom is outside you have to leave the factory go to the hallway it's a bit dangerous because anyone can enter the bathrooms also there is a part in the building that is unprotected you can easily fall into that empty space Goodness me.
3: Because you've asked me
2: to date it, I know it's a trick. (laughs) And
3: I'm going to give you a, a broad answer. You know, hearing that, I think it sounds like sweatshops of 19th century... England, you know, yeah. tenement to of, New York. Ten, yeah. Uh, yeah, This is the realm of Marx and Engels, or this could be certain parts of the world today. I imagine as
2: 1998. well. Nineteen
3: ninety-eight. Nineteen ninety-eight.
2: Whereabouts? Is New York. New York. Yeah. Goodness me. And there are some other examples here of sweatshops, which are absolutely extraordinary. So in China, um, reports of these employees deducting up to forty percent of a worker's pay for using the toilet more than twice a day. Gosh. And there's a sign here of a ruling posted in a factory in Indonesia in East Java to all workers a charge of 100 rupees will be deducted from pay every Saturday for the cost of washing the dishes used to eat meals at work and the same place workers wanting to wash before going home will be required to pay a certain amount of money and more will be charged to workers for parking their bicycles in the factory grounds so those are modern examples and I think for me one of the most fascinating stories or sort of narratives is the history of sweatshops. Yeah, yeah. So that's where I want to go. So it's sweat connected to
3: work, labour, industrialization all those kind of big themes yeah. that we're used to in schools.
2: Yes, also it's globalisation, mass production, yeah. industrialisation, fairness, social reform, inhumanity. It opens up so many doors. Mm. It really is, I think, an extraordinary subject. And one of the things that fascinates me about it is actually how we now know about sweatshops mm. Mm. because they were unregulated, they were hidden from the public eye. And in that, I think so, a very interesting history, and you mentioned Engels, yeah. and he wrote his famous 1844, The Condition of the Working Class in England, which was yeah. based of his yeah. experiences in Manchester. But there are other examples of that. For me, it's fascinating because of this process of research and you can see the worlds opening up their eyes in the, the mid nineteenth century, realizing there was a problem, realizing that something actually needed to be understood. And the way to do that was to research it. It links wonderfully into the whole business of being a historian, I think. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. I've done a little bit on sweatshops
3: as well. Look at this cartoon here. What do you make of that? That's a early depiction
2: of okay. sweatshop. You've got oh it's extraordinary. You've got a big fat landlord kind of guy smoking overseeing an army of skeletons who are all sitting there looks like they're making clothing of some sort and it's interesting isn't it that sweatshops are all certainly this period they're all to do with making yeah clothing it's to do with 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 with, clothing yeah yeah. Yeah. and it was piecework wasn't it right um, before the factory system came in so it was people being paid per item that they created therefore the more they created the more people making it yeah uh, make the guy in charge who's the fat guy here with the cigar more money so what is so this is a punch cartoon dated from 1845.
3: The guy there is sort of regular character Bubbles, and he, you know, he's there sitting on, you know, observing in a sort of portly manner, watching these skeletons, as you say, making clothes. You know, this is a very early depiction of a sweatshop. And in terms of thinking about the kinds of sources that we have for sweatshops, in a way, as a historian, you're thinking about how do you get inside that? You know, can you actually get at the personal testimony of somebody who is in a sweatshop? Or do you see it from, you know, how it's observed by, say, a literary writer or a political writer like Marx and Engels? Parliamentary committees would pull people in and question them about these kinds of things. That's how we know a lot about labour conditions throughout the 19th century. One of the sort of earliest works is a little book, Cheap Clothes and Nasty, by Charles Kingsley, written in 1850. And he was one of the first people to actually coin the term sweat, Mm. to be used in terms of sweatshops. And I'll just read you a few little extracts from here, which, you know, what we're not getting is the people who are in the sweatshops, but we're having somebody who's outside observing them. For at honourable shops, the master deals directly with his workmen, while at the dishonourable ones, the greater part of the work, if not the whole, is let out to contractors or middlemen. Mm -hmm. These are termed sweaters as their victims significantly call them, who in their turn let it out again, sometimes to the workmen, sometimes to fresh middlemen, so that of the price paid for labour of each article, not only the workman but the sweater, and perhaps the sweater's sweater, and a third and a fourth and a fifth have to draw their profit. And when the labour price has been already beaten down to the lowest possible, how much remains for the workmen after all these deductions, let the poor fellows themselves say. So it's this idea that you were talking about, the piecework, you're finding this piecework being passed out second, third hand, and everyone needing to take their cut from it. And the poor workers are the people who are you know who are falling foul
2: of this. And one of the things that really fascinated me about this as well is that the sweatshops get their name as sweatshops and it becomes known as sweating. Then you have the anti sweating league, which is established yeah. in the early twentieth yeah. century. Yeah. And what's really interesting about that and this whole process is that no one can agree on a definition of what sweating is. They know there's a massive social problem. They're applying it to all sorts of different examples of workers not being paid enough and having to work in terrible conditions. But one of the things that I think fascinating is this inability to actually pinpoint the problem. Because there were so many different problems in different locations, whether it was the Anti-Sweating League in in Australia, I think, which is where it came out, or in the UK. And the best one I found was in 1888, the House of Lords. And they carried out an investigation into sweatshops and they came up with this and it's a kind of an overarching acceptance and observation of the problem. Although we cannot assign an exact meaning to sweating, I like that admission, we can't say what mm-hmm. it is, the evils known by that name are shown in the foregoing pages to be one, an unduly low rate of wages, Two, excessive hours of labour. Three, the insanitary state of the houses in which the work is carried on. So there are just three. These evils can hardly be exaggerated. So they're identifying it as a problem, but Mm. government is, rather than actually being very specific and narrow about like a lot of these explanations are, it's all to do with piecework, it's all to do with people making specific items, they've gone the opposite way. They've said, actually... There's some big problems here, and the people focusing on what they think specifically is sweating is only a tiny fraction of it. Yeah. And so, yeah. yes, we can focus on sweating on these minute examples of it, but they knew in the 1880s that it was a bigger problem. And we need to kind of, I think, open, yeah, yeah, yeah. Open, our, open our minds up to these much, much broader issues.
3: I think also what we've done in talking around it like this, we're talking about it from the outside you know, we're talking about it as a process, we're talking about it as a problem, we're talking about how to regulate it. What we haven't got at yet is what it's actually like to be working in those conditions. That's more difficult. If we return to this Kingsley that I was reading from earlier on, we have a wonderful description there of a family actually living in these kinds of conditions. And he says, one sweater I worked with had four children and six men and they worked together with his wife, sister-in-law, and himself. All lived in two rooms, the largest of which was about eight feet by ten. We worked in the smallest room and slept there as well, all six of us, there were two turn-up beds in it, and we slept three in a bed. There was no chimney, and indeed no ventilation whatever. I was near losing my life there. The foul air of so many people working all day in the place and sleeping there at night was quite suffocating. Almost all the men were consumptive, and I myself attended the dispensary for disease of the lungs. The room in which we all slept was not more than six feet square. We were all sick and weak And loathe to work. I mean, these are abominable conditions. Mm. I mean, and we connect this to the rise of the labour movement, the rise of the trade unions, the regulation of this. So sweat is the way of getting into a different kind of sort of mainstream traditional history that people would be quite used to from school, from university, just from reading about the Industrial Revolution.
2: Yeah, it does take us down that way, as you said, the labour movement, et cetera, et cetera. You can go straight into Marxism, and you can yeah. you can talk about all of these massive issues. I like taking it a slightly different way, and it's all to do with my interest <laughs> in historical sources. Okay. And actually, yeah. I think one of the fascinating things is we've been talking about the horrors of working in sweatshops. It's actually all to do with the history of investigative journalism. So it's all happening in the 1860s, 70s, right. 80s, right? And so yeah. what else is happening then? The invention of the camera. Ah. Right? So it's all to do with photography. It's all to do with different types of historical sources. And it's all to do with people doing investigative journalism and saying, right, there's a problem. I'm not just going to sit around writing tracts and, you know, researching people's diaries or going to look what it is. They take photos and they publish it. Now, these Goodness me. are um, images. Jacob Rees, he wrote a book called How the Other Half Lives in 1890. And it is the first example of investigative photojournalism. These are images of the slums of New York.
3: Right. So
2: So it's called How the Other Half Lives. Basically, it's exposing life in the slums to middle-class, upper-class New Yorkers. I'll just flick through a few of these photographs. Here we've got a young child, looks slumped, being helped. He's lying on a pile of manure, it looks like. There's inside a tenement. I'll describe that.
3: Oh, my God. Well, so this is... A very, very cramped room indeed. Um, One,
2: two, three, three four, four,
3: five, six. six. Six people, and you've got a, what looks like a metal stove right in the middle of it. You've got boots everywhere. It looks She's dirty. <laughs> <on> it. <laughs> oh <laughs> my gosh. This isn't your kitchen. <laughs> well,
2: about, but no, it's not. No. But apparently, I made no. stoves to take advantage of people in slums in Goodness New York. It's
3: incredibly cramped conditions. You've got little sacks slung on a hook on the wall, which is obviously where people keep their belongings, all sort of crammed in there yeah um, i mean that's a really squalid disease conditions. and the yeah. one
2: thing there is not there is a window no we, ventilation we've no. done windows these are it's all from the same book how the other half lives i would recommend everyone to look at this because it's absolutely stunning this is a alleyway near the five points area of new york ah. notorious for its gangs and its slums gangs called, of new york called bandits roost right and there they are causing trouble they've got the washings that sort are of strung up from this narrow alleyway this is mulberry street so just off the five points area this is a colored you know people are doing colorization yeah, yeah, absolutely yeah. amazing, amazing image. And actually, it's interesting you mention Gangs of New York because this. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. This That's is not Bill. It butcher. is. Oh my word! Yes, scary looking. I go. This is Goodness the original me. bloke who was in charge of one of the gangs gangs of New York in the 1880s. Who was a butcher, and this is him in his butcher outfit. And he was the real life inspiration for uh, Bill me. the Butcher in Daniel Day Lewis' <laughs> character. Wonderful stovepipe hat, and he's got his saw in one hand, a long nasty knife. I remember him using that in the, the film. Cleaver. The cleaver, and he looks like an absolute <laughs> lunatic. Yes. So this guy takes his camera and he goes and he photographs the characters of the slums and it leads to all sorts of extraordinary things there's changes in the law ultimately Theodore Roosevelt gets involved it really does inspire people but this although it was a really impressive piece of investigative journalism it was the first really powerful example of photo investigative journalism Mm. it wasn't the first famous example of investigative journalism, which I am now going to tell you about, because this really, I found quite extraordinary. This involves lunacy, mental institutions and secret codes. Brilliant. So Right uh, up my street. Bear with me. I'm just going to find this book now. This is a guy called Julius Chambers. So in 1872, he gets himself admitted to the Bloomingdale Hospital. It's an insane asylum. Right. Essentially. Now, this book is called A mad world. And this is the book he wrote about his experience. And he starts off by explaining how he was commissioned to do it. Now, as I read this, bear in mind that no one has done this before. He's a journalist. He's an author. He knows there is a problem with insane asylums. And essentially, this is what happens. A boy entered the room and handed me a telegram, which without altering my position, I opened a message in cipher. And it follows a long string of letters. It's addressed to him. He then works out the key to the cipher. The key was soon completed, the cipher alphabet beginning with the Q letter D. And so he then restructures out his alphabet to work out what the letter says. So it's a very simple form of cipher. I wrote the transcription at the foot of the cipher, supplying all double letters omitted, and started back aghast at the novel mission with which I was asked to undertake. And then he gives his reply. He simply says, yes, but we don't actually hear about what it was until a bit later on in the book, and we find out that the uh, part of that is actually, dear Felix Summers, will you feign insanity? Enter Dr Baldrick's madhouse as a patient and write an expose. Right. And so he does. He gets admitted for sunstroke mania. Sunstroke mania. (laughs) <laughs> okay. He's um, been sweating in the sun. He's been sweating Is this in the sun. He's, he's been sweating in the sun and I'll just just um, read a bit of this describing his first night in his cell because it's worth having a look at. The cell was more uninviting than any I had ever before seen, even in the lowest prisons. It was not more than six feet in width by nine in length and was without any furniture, save a small iron cot with a straw mattress. It was only faintly illuminated when the door was opened by the dull light from the hall. And as there was no transom over the door, I realised in an instant that the cell would be utterly dark as soon as I was locked in for the night. He then has his first night and... It was truly shocking. He really struggles to explain just how bad it was. Mm. No means were ever resorted to which proved so effectual in breaking the will, destroying hope and inspiring madness, a solitary confinement in a cell. Then uh, there followed a night whose horrors, even to the minutest particulars, can never be forgotten. Left in the cell with my secret and my thoughts, I rose in my bed and gazed out through the gated window in order to get a last breath of fresh air. And it goes on. It describes the noises. It describes the horror of everything he had to go through. He was eventually uh, released after 10 days when it was proved that he didn't have the sunstroke mania. Um, but it led he then wrote a report, it was published, and it led to the release of 12 patients who were not mentally ill, who had been locked up in this place, reorganisation of the staff of the administration, and eventually change in the lunacy laws. Um, it was published in the Tribune, and that is the earliest example of investigative journalism.
3: Brilliant. And we should do the history of madness. We should do. As well. mm. The history of madness, or the asylum, yeah. the straitjacket
2: or pretending. pretending. I mean he's he's essentially pretending, pretending yeah. Yes, lying. Wonderful. But where have we gone? We've got well we've gone from body odor to to sweating lodges, to sweating lodges to sweating shops, which is a different thing, to Icelandic saunas, S- sweating sickness. Yes. And finally to investigative journalism. Brilliant. Yes. So do please get online and have a look at these photographs that we've been discussing because they're absolutely amazing. I think they've sort of affected me more than pretty much anything else that I've seen. Don't forget, you're the most important member of this podcast. So really, really get in touch. And we hope to see you again soon.
1: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.
2: If you enjoy this podcast and you like learning about the past, check out my latest venture. It's called History Masterclass, and it's a new type of historical event where you can actually learn in person from the best historians around today in unique and stunning historical locations. You can find out more at thehistorymasterclass.com and follow on
0: Facebook and Twitter at the TheHistoryMC.